Good afternoon again, everybody. And before I give a message, I wanted to mention Brother Henry said talked about having a list of things and that we believe, and it reminded me that uh, there we do have a website, whether you know it or not. Uh, it's something that I've been working on for a while, and um, it's taken a while to get it where I think would be good for a testimony, but one of the places on there is what we believe. And I would encourage those of you with internet access to go to the website and kind of look around a little bit. It should not be just me in my closet coming up with, you know, the website. I'd love it for some, be, to be a collective thing that we do together. Um, and uh, take a look at those statements of doctrine. They're taken largely from writings of brethren and also other websites of assemblies that we share fellowship with. So take a look at them and see, is there something we need to add or change uh, to make as clear a statement as possible of who we are and, um, and what, we, what we believe. It may be more and more important as time goes on. There's also uh, one of the things, the last thing that I need to do on the website is to do this resources page where we can put on like a directory of some of the assemblies that we fellowship with, um, some of the writings of the brethren and things like that. So if you think of something that you'd like to see on there, you know, feel free to share it and we can work on that together, I hope. PineStreetChapel.org? Thank you, yeah. PineStreetChapel.org. S-T for street? No, street the word. PineStreetChapel.org. You can check it out. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Return to our sentence this beautiful sentence, and I think it's uh, fitting that we fall now on the fifth quality in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. We're on the fifth quality, and it's one that I think is timely for the discussion that we were having earlier. Second, Second Peter chapter 1. Over the last months, I've been... No, Second Peter. Did I say Timothy? I'm sorry. Sorry. Not Timothy. We'll get to Timothy in his own time. Second Peter, chapter 1. And we have this list of seven qualities that should characterize the believer more and more. They should abound or increase as we walk with them. Wow, it's already five past one, so I guess I'm done. It's been nice talking to you. No, we'll just speak a little bit. A short message today. But I've been going through these seven qualities one by one and speaking about how can I make every effort to add this to my life. And so we've looked at, in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith virtue. Virtue, knowledge, Knowledge, self-control, self-control, steadfastness or patience or endurance is the last one we talked about. And today, godliness. And then it goes on, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. And this desired consequence, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. How great we need to be effective and fruitful in our generation. Let us not render ourselves ineffective or unfruitful 
by the things that we claim to know about Jesus Christ. No life was more fruitful than the life of Jesus Christ lived here in the flesh. And He was perfect. And I oftentimes think, how could He ever spend time with sinners? How was He able to even endure all their failings? But He had a way of living that we can really emulate. And I want to talk a little bit about this word godliness. So, make every effort to add to your faith godliness. What is godliness? You know, if you look at the word itself, the Greek word that it comes from, there's no God in it. In other words, God isn't a part of the word. It's actually a word that simply means devotion or piety. It's a big word that doesn't probably mean much to you, piety. We, people used to always talk about being pious or living pious lives. But it's really an attitude of reverence for God. And so for a working definition for, me, for, the, for this afternoon, I wanted to call godliness a life lived in the context of God. Living my life in the context of God. And here's what I mean by that. There's a real move in our day and age to talk about the possibility of being good without God. Has anyone ever heard that phrase before? Good without God. There was a well-known atheist that rented out billboard space for a while. I think it was over the holidays, the Christmas season, things like that. And just that phrase, good without God. Wanted to get that message out there. In other words, saying we don't need to believe in a God to be moral people. We don't need the crutch of a God in order to live a life of goodness. And this is a popular message that I think is only going to get more and more popular as the days go on. This is how the world will find its morality and its moral center. So for a long time, people didn't believe this. So for, you know, thousands of years, people always went back to at least a God, some type of divinity, to find a sense of what is right and wrong. And people would make the argument, if there were no God, everything would be allowed. I mean, how could you ever say that something is wrong? Because in order to say something is wrong, you have to appeal to some sense of authority that's higher than you. Because if I say it's wrong and you tell me it's right, who's going to decide which of us is right? And so for thousands of years, people went back to the idea of some kind of divinity, some supernatural authority that's higher than humanity to show this is what it means to live a good life, to be good. But in the 20th century especially, it started in the 19th century, this push, and in the 20th century, God was dethroned, and there was a philosopher that would say even that God is dead, um, and now humanity takes the throne, and now humanism is going to tell us what is good and what is evil. But I think even the simplest examination of that idea proves it to be faulty. And I, my goal now isn't to go into some philosophical argument. But I would encourage you 
If you ever hear that, this idea of being good without God, sit down with somebody and talk about it. I remember as a, as a college student, there was a man named Christopher Hitchens, who was a popular atheist who died not too long ago, and he came to our campus. And Christopher Hitchens was a, a, he was a religious atheist. I mean, he was amazing. He was an evangelist for atheism. And as he spoke, he would always talk about how terrible Christianity was. And he would always say, I don't like it because it's, it's you should, I don't like Sunday school because it's wrong to lie to children. And I remember this Christian that he was debating at my school said, what makes you think it's wrong to lie to children? Where do you get that idea? Who says? Who says it's wrong to lie to children? What Christopher Hitchens and anyone who claims that you can be good without God, what they're missing is that they live in the they have the benefit of living in a Christian culture, at least a post-Christian culture, a culture that's been highly influenced by morality that came from the Bible. And so now they have the remnants of that morality still sticking to our society. It's still not gone yet, even though many people don't confess God. And so they still have this nagging sense in their mind, I know that this is wrong. I, I could never say exactly why it is. But what they don't realize is that's God telling them. It's God who decides, this is right, this is wrong. There is no argument that you or I could make against the morality or immorality, against the morality of same-sex marriage, for example, apart from God. People always go back to, well, it's unnatural, etc. People go back to, uh, it's going to lead to, uh, there won't be any more reproduction. All those arguments are faulty. It would be great if we could slow the birth rate down. I mean, we're trying desperately to slow the birth rate down in a lot of countries. So, what we have to do as Christians is to fill our lives, to add to our lives godliness, which means all the goodness in your life, you need to attribute it to God. We need to live our lives in the context of God so that when people see your good deeds... They don't say, wow, that's a great person. When your co-workers see your good deeds, how you don't cheat and how you don't uh, talk bad behind people's back, they don't just say, I like being around this person. He's a great example. I think he's great. He must have had a great parent, great upbringing. But instead, like Peter says in his other book, they'll see your good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the goal. We need to live our lives in such a way that we are seen not as good people, but as godly people. Okay? So the question is, how can I add godliness? What exactly does that mean? And I think that this, of all the seven qualities, gets the most specific, puts the finger most specifically on the public aspect of our faith. So when he says, add, add to your faith godliness, I think this is the call for us to live a public faith. So in our day, religion is seen as a very good thing for your private life. But don't bring that into the public sphere. Especially in um, a secular society such as ours in, in America. I'm not thinking it's for example, of South America. South America is in a different place than North America is right now in Europe. 
But in Europe, for example, which is a little farther down the line maybe than where we are right now, religion is still fine. I mean, you can still talk about religion all you want, but it has to be a private affair. And so we need to add a public aspect to our faith. Okay? So flip over now to Timothy. So now we get to see Timothy, but actually 1 Timothy. And I want to just look at a couple things he says about it and then just in a... Our brief moments together at the end talk about Joseph, who incidentally, if you're interested, I think Joseph fails in godliness, and I'll tell you why. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Or, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 4. See how he begins in verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says, In later times some will depart from the faith. Okay. You know, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, I don't think these are going to be like Satan worshippers. That's not what we're talking about. It's deceitful teachings. Devoting themselves, that, de- that word devoting themselves goes back to reverence. But instead of reverence for God, now we have reverence for human teachers. And so our day is very much characterized by reverence for wise human teachers, be they politicians, um, Philosophers, scientists, especially scientists, but a real there's a real reverence in our society for public figures like that, celebrities, right? The Kardashians, whoever it is, we have reverence for everybody except for God. And so there's going to be this departing from faith and basically a departing from godliness. And look at what he says now as you move down to verse seven: Have nothing to do with your reverent silly myths or old wives' tales, rather. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And I think it holds promise not just for yourself, but it holds promise for the people who are looking at you. So bodily exercise, he, makes a, he uses a metaphor. And he says, train yourself for godliness just like the athlete trains for physical strength. What does that mean? It's difficult. It's consistent. It's consistent, this training for godliness, right? And oftentimes, it is inglorious. In other words, no one's looking on you while you're training and saying, wow, what a great athlete. It's only when when you're, when does, when do you say he's a great athlete? When he's on display, right? When he's on the football field, that's when they say, wow, that person really shone during this game. In his public expression, wow, he was a great athlete. But where would that athlete be without all the hidden training that he put into that? And so you are going to be seen, you need to live a life of public godliness. But where do we add that godliness? It happens in the private sphere. We train ourselves for godliness so that when the time comes to be seen by the world, they're going to look on and say, not what a good man. They're going to say, what a godly man. Not a good woman, but what a godly woman. And they'll be forced to wrestle with your God. In other words, they'll be forced to say, if I want to emulate that person, and I do, I so desperately want to be like that person, I have to wrestle with the fact that they attribute everything to God. 
And so as we train ourselves for godliness, realize that it's a private training with a public expression. And so the public expression begins right here, I think. It's as we gather. This, to a certain extent, is public. Not everyone who gathers here may be a believer, right? So this is where we publicize our faith. This is where it begins. But it can't stop here. VBS, camps, conversations, going out into the community. There's other ways in which you publicly express your godliness. But all of that is backed by diligent and consistent and difficult private training. And that's obviously all the things we've talked about before. Reading the Word, spending time in prayer, practicing the spiritual disciplines. So that when you're pushed and somebody says, what's the matter with you? Why do you think that's a sin? You know, and, and they push you up against the wall. Your public expression can be one that's honoring to Christ and not dishonoring to His name. And lastly, flip over to chapter 6. So he, he continues talking about godliness when in chapter 6 he says some people, this is verse 5, they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And the interesting thing about American culture is that in the 50s and 60s, godliness was a means of gain. And maybe even up into the 70s. You would put Christian on your business so you could get more money because that was seen as a positive thing. So, for many people, godliness was a means of gain. Being seen publicly to be godly would get you more business, more friends, right? But we can easily say, in these days, that taking a stand and saying, I do everything I do because the Bible tells me so, I do everything I do to give glory to the God in heaven who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ, His Son, this is not going to be a means of gain. Paul, Paul goes on to tell him, but godliness with contentment is great gain, but it's not the kind of gain that these false teachers were encouraging. So just as we need to train ourselves with God for godliness, as we had in chapter 4, we need to realize that this is not going to somehow get us more friends or make us more popular. But it is going to make the name of God more popular. Lastly, let's just flip back to Genesis here at the end. And I started off this series thinking about how Joseph was such a great displayer of these seven qualities. And then I come to godliness and I tripped. And I began, I was telling Chad this the other day, and I thought, if there's one that Joseph needed to add, I believe it was this one. And here's why I say that. The last time we see him publicly talking about the God of the Hebrews is with Potiphar's wife. Well, he does say God's going to reveal the, the message, the dreams. But once he comes into power, right, he comes into power, God begins to fade a little from the picture. Now, I'm not trying to make some kind of hard and fast statement here, but I am just maybe giving us something to think about. Could Joseph have been more public in his reverence for God? Look at how he tests his brothers in chapter 44. And you remember this very well, I'm sure. They're there. And the brothers are looking for food, and he sends them away with food. And he says, verse 1, he commanded the steward of his house. This is Genesis 44. Fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry. Put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. 
He's telling his servants this, his Egyptian servants. So they do it. And then when they come to them, look at what happens. As soon as morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They'd gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this, sorry, is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. Now that always troubled me. I mean, it kind of confused me. This silver cup by which he practiced divination. Most commentators, when you read that, they'll say he didn't really. He just was saying that. It was all part of the, the ruse, all part of the trick. But I think, how did his servants look on that? Did his servants think that he was just like any other Egyptian ruler practicing divination with cups and participating in the religion of his day? Or did they know that he was a worshiper of this one true God, a foreign God to Egypt, and someone they had to reckon with? Look at what happens when Jacob dies over in... This is now chapter 49. Jacob breathes his last. Now chapter 50. Another interesting practice. Now this is chapter 50. Joseph fell on his father's face, wept over him, and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And that's interesting. The Israelites didn't embalm their dead. This was an Egyptian practice. And in fact, a very religious practice. The priests were always involved. Now most commentators, as you read it, will say, he asked the physicians to come in not the priests. But at the same time, he's participating in this Egyptian practice. Almost, you see like a, uh, they call it syncretism. You see this blending of, you know, do they know that Joseph is a worshiper of Yahweh? Or do they think now we've, he's become fully Egyptian? And look at what happens with the mourning. It says that they mourn for him 70 days. Not 30 days, but 70 days, which was the practice of the Egyptians. The religious practice of the Egyptians. And then at the end, it says he himself was embalmed. Joseph's body was embalmed. Now, I'm, like I said, I'm not trying to make a hard and fast rule, but isn't it interesting that once Joseph disappears, no one talks about the God of the Hebrews. No one talks about Yahweh for those 400 years. And when by the time Moses comes, even the Israelites have practically forgotten their God. Think of the difference of a Daniel. Daniel in Babylon. He was a godly one. Right? He wasn't just great. He was godly. And so that whenever people wanted to find something to trip him up, they said the only way we'll find anything against him is against his God, this God that he worships. Everyone knew that he was God's man. And so that three kings, three foreign kings, confessed the God of Israel during his interactions with them. That's godliness. And so, just to throw that out there, maybe more as a question than anything else, but could Joseph have done more to add godliness in his old age so that there would be this public testimony to the private things that he said to his brothers? He was telling his brothers God meant it for good. He always mentions God to his brothers. When it comes to his people, the Egyptians, I'm a father to Pharaoh. He practiced, or at least seemingly practiced, most of the things that they did, even the religious practices. So we in our day, 
need to stand for the truth of our God. Might we do all that we can, make every effort to add godliness, this public expression of living a life in the context of God, rather than simply trying to be a good person. And I think it will have lasting effect and can have saving effect in the people who are looking on for His glory.